Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. My name is Tammy Klein. I'm founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies, and I'm super pleased uh, to have with me today um, uh, Calliope Panutsu, Kiriakos Maniatis, and Alba Soler of Konkawe, and they're going to talk to us about a study that just came out from Imperial College uh, of London Consultants on Sustainable Biomass Availability in the EU to 2050. So I'm super excited to talk about that because as electrification uh, continues to scale up, there are also numerous uh, advanced biofuels technologies and feedstocks and such that are beginning to scale up in the EU um, and also in North America as well. So the question is how much and when and what? And I think the study goes a long way toward beginning to answer those questions. Welcome to the program, all. Great to have you. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Well. All thank right. You so, thank, thank you. you. So, um, Calliope and Kiriakos are the main authors uh, of the study, um, and Konkawe was the sponsor of the study. So Konkawe um, is uh, a, an organization uh, that is a part of the, is a division of the European Refiners Association. Um, and Konkawe's mission is to really focus on um, on the science. Um, and that's what this study is about. So Alba, I'm going to start uh, with you. Um, Alba uh, Soler is the science associate, um, low carbon pathways for Konkawe, um, and uh, was a big part um, of the study and seeing the study through. So Alba, for the listeners who may not be familiar, especially those who might be outside of the European Union, can you talk a little bit more about uh, what Konkawe does and what led Konkawe to undertake this study? Thank you. Yes, sure, I can answer that. Um, in Konkawe, we are the scientific body of the European Refining Association. We are based in Brussels and we represent 40 member companies, which represents almost 100% of the companies with refining activities in, in Europe. And one of the activities I'm leading as part of this Concagua team is the what we call the low carbon pathways, which tries to assess different ways, opportunities, challenges of different technologies and feedstocks to reduce the carbon intensity of our products and our refineries in Europe. Um, we have been uh, for a long time uh, analyzing you know, the future of the transport sector and how to decarbonize it. And of course, the electrification will play a major role, but there are other segments where electrification is not a feasible option, such as maritime aviation. Mm -hmm. And we really believe that low carbon fuels could play an important role in the future. So we st started analyzing future um, um, demand scenarios, and we saw that there could be an option if we deploy the technologies, the low-carbon technologies, in a fast way to be able to achieve the carbon neutrality by 2050 in the transport sector. But the, the main question we always received from the Commission and from several stakeholders when we were talking about biofuels and e-fuels, because of course you need all the low carbon technologies on feedstocks to be able to achieve this very challenging goal. The question was always, 
like, but do you think there will be enough sustainable biomass to produce that big amount of biofuels? Because take into account that it's not only the transport sector who will use biomass to decarbonize. There are many other sectors, such as the power sector, the industrial sector, that they, they are also looking into biomass to decarbonize. And we need the biomass to be sustainable, to not impact the biodiversity. So do you think that this is feasible? And, and also for the bio-based products, so biochemicals, biopharmaceuticals, there will be enough sustainable biomass for all the sectors and without impacting biodiversity. So sometimes, some months ago, we were not really able to answer this. So that's why we wanted to really have a clear answer on this. And this is why we, we started the study with Imperial College London consultants, and we have published it recently with a clear answer on that. So let's get into that clear answer. Thank you, Alba, with um, Kalayapi Panutsu, um, who is um, from the Center of, for Environmental Policy at Imperial College London, and um, Dr. Kiriakos Maniatis. Um, uh, Kiriakos uh, recently retired from DG Energy, Director, Director General Energy for the European Commission. So Kalayapi Kiriakos, um, welcome again to the program. And now that we, we dive a little more deeply into the findings of the report, um, what were um, the key findings um, from your perspective? And was there anything in the report as you were doing the analysis um, that really surprised you both? Anything that really jumped out? Uh, I'll, I'll start and then I can continue. First of all, um, we were asked uh, by Alba and my colleagues to have a fresh look to um, an area that has been uh, heavily analyzed uh, through the uh, last decade, at least. Um, so uh, we were asked to um, respond to whether or not there's enough biomass. Uh, we've uh, made a few interviews from colleagues that have done similar studies, um, including our own internal teams. Uh, and uh, we uh, then sat down with the uh, colleagues at Concave and set a set of scenarios that were very restrictive. And uh, I, I cannot say that I was hugely surprised by something, but when we started the discussions on the scenarios and we started uh, adding all the sustainability criteria from the Renewable Energy Directive as they are at the moment, plus uh, other considerations for ongoing political debates uh, for uh, uh, whether the uh, unused abandoned land can be available and how much uh, restrictions can we put on that as well. Uh, uh, in addition, how can we restrict further the use of forest biomass? All these things happened while we were doing. So as we were restricting and restricting, I was a bit cautious that probably we wouldn't result in having enough biomass uh, in the end. But um, so I was positively surprised to uh, find out that uh, even with the very, very conservative restrictions that we had in the low scenario, which meant that from uh, for forest biomass, for example, uh, current uh, use for energy in Europe is 45% we restricted it to 25%. Uh, 
marginal land. Uh, we restrict it uh, even from the sustainable potential of marginal unused abandoned land. Uh, we used only 25%. Still, this am the amount of biomass on the ground uh, was sufficient to uh, meet uh, the targets set by the automotive industry. Plus, uh, we have to mention uh, and make clear that the study didn't account for all biomass feedstocks that can be available. We worked on a list of feedstocks that are included in the Renewable Energy Directive Part A and B in the so-called Annex 9, but some of them, we could not assess them because there are no statistical consistent data sets and time series that we could use in our models. So we didn't even use the list of allowable feedstocks, uh, even with limited number of feedstocks. Uh, and with these heavy restrictions, uh, we believe and we found out, we measured and modeled that the potential is there. Uh, having limited number of feedstocks means that additional potential to the one we estimated can be expected. Uh, and um, uh, it is, of course, understood that there are two elements to make this potential uh, be implementable. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, additional research and development and innovation is required in harvesting, in yields, uh, in knowledge for the farmers and for the foresters and for the local communities. Uh, and uh, also um, a lot of mobilization strategies and support uh, should be placed in the countries and the regions that have this potential and or this biomass presence. Um, I think that was on my side, Kiyakos. And definitely. Yeah. Care to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I was not really surprised by the fact that the study proved that there is enough sustainable biomass to meet, let's say, the targets, or at least certain targets of four advanced biofuels, because in the Commission, while I was the Commission, I've made some similar studies, but not that extensive. What surprised me is when I was looking at the technologies and how quickly this thing can come in the market, I realized that basically it takes approximately a minimum of about, I would say, between eight to 15 years before technology started from the lab to come to the market. And this, this is something very practical. Something that, and the problem is that the policymakers and the politicians, they don't understand this problem. So if they put in a legislation that we're going to have so much percent of, let's say, e-fuels, coming from renewable electricity, by 2030, they don't realize that probably that's not going to be the technology, or it's not going to be there on time. Now, of course, there's a lot of progress has been done on all of our, the technologies, but it's not so easy because you put in legislation that the technology is going to follow the legislation. It needs time, it needs investment, and it needs a lot of efforts from the stakeholders and the community. So there's a gap of misunderstanding about when the technology can come actually to the market. So that's a gap of understanding for me in the decision in the policy makers. And that was for me a surprise to see that in the report there are, let's say, examples from four of the most advanced, I would say, technology developers. And then you see that it takes them eight to 15 years to bring technology from the concept in the lab up to the market. Yes. You know, it's interesting from a philosophical uh, perspective, and this is my perspective, you could actually make some of the same arguments with electrification, you know, in terms of, 
you know, battery technologies. I mean, that's not what this podcast is about, but it is interesting because I think policymakers are doing the same thing, but also on the electric vehicle side, they just impact maybe the, the auto industry, the pressure is on the auto industry um, with respect to producing um, those technology technologies, meeting requirements like, like CO2, uh, the CO2 requirements, you know, developing um, advanced battery technologies that are also totally sustainable, things like uh, battery technologies like solid state and the like. So it's um, the issue that you're identifying, I think, is, you know, maybe goes beyond um, the, the biofuels realm, but you can certainly see it in the biofuels uh, technology realm. So I wanted to ask you a little bit further um, about um, biomass availability for advanced um, biofuel or advanced alternative uh, biofuel production. What more did you did you find, or what more can you say about that? And what also more can you say about um, advanced um, the the availability and real commercial takeoff, as it, as it were, for production technologies like, you know, gasification or vasopyrolysis or hydrothermal uh, liquefaction and, and the like? Um, again, I'll just uh, start and Jakos will uh, uh, mention the details about the technologies. Uh, first of all, um, going back to the question that uh, triggered uh, the will for this study, as Alba mentioned, is that uh, whenever you mention advanced biofuels, people's first thing that comes in mind is that, but yes, is there enough uh, biomass on the ground to make sure uh, you cover the demand from all the sectors, energy and non-energy ones. So um, what we have found out is that, uh, uh, first of all, uh, we have assessed two types of potentials. First of all, uh, first the uh, overall available sustainable potential for all markets. Uh, so we've worked with uh, no assumptions for demand. We worked only for the upstream, for the supply part, uh, with the sustainability restrictions that I mentioned. Uh, and following that, we uh, excluded the uh, already known demand for the bio-based sectors, bioeconomy to 2030 and 2050 to the extent possible, uh, and to the extent that data were available. And there are data in the European Union that are used in modeling. Uh, and uh, we found out that the amount of biomass that's available for bioenergy uh, is still enough to uh, meet both the targets uh, as they are mentioned to the official European Commission document, the Clean Planet for All, their projections. So uh, the available biomass is enough for uh, the bioenergy industry and uh, um, heat purposes that are provisioned in the study uh, and for the transport sectors. Uh, so this was a, a great finding from our side because it means that the sectors uh, can uh, have the possibility, have the options, the biophysical capacity to use, to develop these biomass uh, hubs and to use this biomass sustainably. Um, now, if, if we look to the spectrum of the available technologies we have, there are two commercial ones. One is the biogas production from aerobic digestion, mm -hmm. removal of the carbon dioxide, and then you end up with biomethane. You can 
the environment you can use it in transport, you can put it in the grid, you can do whatever you want with it, more or less. Yeah. The other one is the hydro-treated vegetable oils. And they are very reliable. They are how can I say they are, they are commercial operations. Yeah. Uh, very good fuel. It's a drop in fuel. It can go to aviation, can go to maritime, can go to any kind of diesel application or anything else. The other one that is approaching the market for the moment is the lipocellosic ethanol. That means it's a biological processing. There are several operations in the US, Brazil, in Europe, trying to develop, even in India, trying to develop this technology. And actually, they are building the first of a kind plant. The three ones that you mentioned, the uh, gasification, mm-hmm. aspirolysis, and uh, the hydrothermal liquefaction, they are the so-called thermochemical, uh, let's okay. say, processes. Now, these are actually a little bit more behind than the cellulosic ethanol. They're still in the development stage. Now, I know that in the US and in Europe, there are several uh, progress, sorry, a lot of progress has been made. And there are a few plants being built at this moment, as we're discussing. But still, they have not reached the state of progress of cellulosic ethanol. And specifically, if we look at gasification, it's an extremely interesting technology because from gasification, you can end up to fissure drops, fuels. And again, like the hydrogen vegetable oils, they are dropping, they can be blended in almost any kind of application. However, and what's extremely interesting with the classification, if we can find renewable hydrogen or green hydrogen, whatever it's coming from, mm-hmm. then it can increase significantly the conversion of carbon, biomass carbon, to advanced biofuel. And that's in a way from the start, from a technical analysis, comes perhaps, if I may use the terminology, um, the most, uh, if I may say so, attractive technology in the long term, if we want to maximize the use of the natural resources of biomass, that's all carbon to biofuel. Yeah. Now, pyrolysis and hydrothermal liquefaction, they are very interesting in the source and medium term, possibly beyond, because they can be the, the bio oil and the bio, bio crude. They can be co-processed in the refineries. So basically, you want you build the small plants that they produce the bio crude from uh, uh, some liquefaction and the bio oil from the fast pyrolysis. You send it to the refinery and they co-process it, and then of course you get all the products in the end. So this happens again at this moment as we are discussing. They are being tested and in Europe and beyond Europe, in North America, and so on. So these are very interesting technologies, but they still, in my view, they have a big step to do. Build the first almost commercial plant, have it run, because, you know, it takes three years. From the moment yeah. someone decides I'm going to build the plant, uh, permits, uh, construction, commissioning, and then you have to actually to optimize it. So we need these technologies to be with us by 2030. And here we need quite some investments from all the stakeholders, from the, from the government, from the industry, and so on. So this is more or less, if I can, in a way, link the I would mm-hmm. say the, the the biomass to the technology to the available technologies. Yeah, I I agree with what you say about gasification. I um, and through um, uh, Woody Biomass, I really am watching closely, like the Velasquez projects, uh, yes. for example, and really paying close attention to those because they have so much. Uh, potential and they are breaking ground and they are moving forward and that's really really uh, positive but it is um, you know I look at those technologies because they're so you know if you can figure out some of the challenges that you and Calliope are mentioning they have such flexibility and applicability in different part di- different parts of the fuel pool or different parts of the 
transport sector. And uh, there's just so much potential there, especially for hard to decarbonize sectors um, that Alpha mentioned, like aviation, shipping, heavy duty trucking, um, things that won't electrify um, or become hydrogenized, I guess you could say, um, you know, in- immediately. Indeed. And I mean, there's something else. Basically, you can use any kind of biomass, like, for example, you municipal soil the waste. If you extract, let's say, the metals, yeah. and there's holes, all the rest they can go in the gasifier. So the technology is extremely interesting. It's extremely, but at the same time, it's very challenging because not only you have the gasification, then it was a very important step, the gas cleaning, and then you have the conversion, the catalytic conversion process. But uh, as you said very correctly, it can be applied if successful. They yeah. has a huge market, several applications. Yeah. So how do you see, you mentioned um, biomethane. How do uh, Calliope, you and Kiriako see biomethane fitting into the mix um, in 2030 and 2050? Because, you know, biomethane, which in, in the U.S., when it's um, upgraded, uh, we call it renewable natural gas. I mean, it is everywhere. And um, there's lots of interest um, in, the, in, in development in the States in Canada, um, in other places for, for transport, for power generation, for thermal, um, you know, for heating and things like that. Um, how do you both see it for your... Uh, if, I, if, if I may start, uh, uh, I'll just give my uh, perspective from the uh, resource point of mm-hmm. view. I think it's a, um, an excellent uh, way to combine uh, waste or residuals, effluent, mm-hmm and also to combine um, innovative cropping practices like intercropping, crop rotation, use the same land uh, and improve the coverage, improve the uh, nitrogen fixing in the roots, uh, and uh, then uh, use a mixed resource which secures your year-round supply and uh, adds it into the digester. Uh, And Uh, In the same time, you uh, help the industry or the municipalities or the regions uh, recycle and reuse uh, their uh, waste or bio-waste components. Plus, you can help farmers get an additional income and protect their soil from erosion, from climate impacts, give them new outlets and thus increase the resilience, which uh, if we go uh, to the COVID situation we've all faced, uh, resilience and income uh, in the farming communities and rural areas is very critical. Um, so uh, that's my perspective from the resource base. And uh, last but not least, you can uh, have the digest date afterwards, which is recycled in a circular economy mode. It goes into the soil, improves soil mm-hmm. carbon, and it is ecological type of fertilizer, uh, reduced chemicals, uh, mm-hmm. with all the benefits we can think for people's health. Yeah. Yeah, I think soil carbon, better retention, um, practices, however you want to call it, I think might be one of the um, unsung heroes potentially for climate change mitigation, improving the soil and carbon retention and and such. But Kiriakos, I'm interested in your point of view on the question of biomethane. Well, biomethane is a lovely fuel. I mean, you can, it's, it's clean, it's bio, you can use it any way you want to use it as long as you can burn it burns very, very cleanly. However, in transport, always, and again, this is a very personal opinion, in transport, there's always preference for drop-in fuels. 
And although there are applications in some countries, they have quite excessive use of, of course, natural gas, uh, natural gas cars and so on. And people sometimes they even they modify their regimes to be able to produce natural gas. Still, for me, the preference is dropping fuel. So I don't, and again, let me add that uh, as probably, I'm certainly, you know, that some of the car manufacturers and uh, heavy duty manufacturers like Volvo and others, they have developed engines specifically for biomethane or natural yes. gas. Yeah. However, in the long term, in the medium to long term, I don't see much interest of biomethane in transport. Mm-hmm. The biggest, I would say, at least also from the European point of view, the most attractive application would be you produce your biomethane, you put it in the grid. And mm-hmm. whether the grid it goes for, let's say, for cooking or it goes to transport applications, that's another story. Because also there's quite an effort in the European Union, a lot of discussion, how we're going to green the grid. Yeah. And biomethane, okay, there are discussions about hydrogen, but before you start adding hydrogen to the grid, the first step, the low-hanging fruit, is the biomethane. So personally, again, I see biomethane, uh, the best application, the most easy, is adding to the grid because we have standards developed by CERN for that. So that I see the medium and long-term application, not so much in transport. Yeah. You know, I actually uh, agree with you because if you if you also look at it from the point of view of the fleet, I mean, you know, the the incentives are going to go toward um, either either they'll they will remain uh, diesel vehicles for for you know like for, for heavy heavy duty for example, um, or the incentives um, policymakers will push the incentives towards you know electrification you know and in many countries including in the U.S. it's it's not like and it's not like those incentives are going to go to the natural gas. Um, you know, uh, vehicles uh, necessarily. They're going to go toward electrification and the fleets aren't really that large to begin with. There, I know there's some large, larger fleets um, in some of the European countries, but not so um, in other countries. So um, yeah, it would seem to me the best use would be put it into the grid <laughs> and lower your carbon intensity for, for electricity production. Yeah. For sure. So I want to get back to, to Alba and ask her question. But before I do that, I want to ask you a little more about HVO. In the report, um, you both write that hydro-treated lipids is and will remain the most developed value chain to produce hydrocarbon fuels. However, the long-term contribution of this value chain is hampered by the availability of lipids that meet the sustainability requirements of Annex 9 of the Renewable Energy Directive. So what do you both see as the future for fuels like HVO or, or even HEFA, actually, um, for that matter, um, given the, these constraints on lipids? Uh, I'll just mention again the perspective of of the supply, the points we found uh, through reviewing what is available and speaking to a couple of industry representatives. Um, There is uh, room for improved supply through uh, partnerships between industries that are the raw material lipid producers. Uh, So one way is improving this sort of synergy Uh, and uh, establishing the connection. And the other one is that many countries still don't have optimized collection of lipids. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this uh, is expected. And when I say many, European Union has 27, so it's a vast majority of them 
are not yet anywhere near optimal collection of their lipid generation potential and the waste lipid especially. So this calls for a for a strong uh, support motive uh, or awareness campaign or uh, working in hand in hand with the professionals, uh, hotels, associations, industries, etc., restaurants. Um, and this will definitely uh, double, triple the amount that at the moment is uh, statistically recorded so far. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's uh, as, uh, lo- as far as we got. Mm-hmm. supply perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kyriakos, any additional perspective? Um, yes. Uh, Tabi, as you said, hydro-treated um, visible oils, um, very nice. it's a very nice fuel. Uh, perhaps from advanced biofuel is the, the cheapest for the moment, compared to cellulosic ethanol or fisotrops and so on. Uh, however, it has the limitation uh, more or less in the red directive, red two and possibly another red three. That is that, let's say, you know very well that uh, food-based, so-called food-based biofuels, they may not go beyond 7% or where they can't go up. That's it. <laughs> uh, this is something that I don't really agree because the emphasis goes on the resource, whether it is palm oil, uh, soya beans, uh, sunflowers, whatever it might be. This is this is. Um, I always was while I was in the commission. I was discussing with my colleagues. For me, this is the wrong approach. The emphasis has to be on the sustainable use of the land. There are sustainability criteria. There are DG. Let's say we have uh, with the um, with the common agricultural policy criteria how to use the land. I found it wrong and limiting to put limits on the basis of the fuel or of the production of the land. Mm-hmm. Actually. That's for me has to be revised, but I don't see this happening because somehow uh, in, the, in, in, in Brussels, if I may say so, in some of the member states and the governments, they don't like any more the term uh, food-based biofuels. They want to limit them, limit them to whatever possible extent. But again, the fuel is not the issue, or the resource is not the issue. The issue is: do we have additional land that we can use? without limiting the food, of course, because food is priority for everybody. But mm-hmm. it's marginal land, as Poppy said, as Kayopi said. There is um, other lands that they can be, there's abundant land that could be used. If that land can be recovered and used sustainably and produce sustainably, let's say, uh, I don't know, uh, oils and lipids that they don't go into the food chain, why not? I mean, you know very well that UPM is doing in Rwanda, they're producing uh, cover crops in winter, that actually the farmers, they have a double income, they produce whatever they produce, and then they produce the cover crop, and from that, they can produce fuels. So that's for me, uh, but again, this is not, let me be specific, this is not, I'm not certain it's the composition of Colcave or Imperial, because this is personal opinion, I don't agree 100% with kind of legislation from the European Union. So, personal opinion. <laughs> so, let me turn back to you, Alba. So, how do the uh, biomass and biofuels estimations in the study um, correspond or match with Konkawe's transport demand scenarios for both 2030 and for 2050? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what we did, uh, once we had the biomass availability estimated by Imperial College and trying to look at the different technologies that Kriakos was explaining, trying to see which is the maximum yield you can achieve per type of feedstock and conversion pathway. So we were able to estimate the maximum potential biofuel 
biofuel that you could have when you have already subtracted the part that could be allocated to bio-based products, to power sector, to industrial sector, etc. So only leaving what is available potentially for transport sector. And with these figures, what we said is, okay, and how does it compare with the future scenarios that we see in the transport sector? And these scenarios, we have developed like three scenarios, like more optimistic and less optimistic, taking into account how the penetration of low-carbon fuels could be done to achieve the net zero emissions in, tra in transport sector by 2050. And what we saw, um, of course, you need a push and a high scale-up and deployment of these technologies that with around 150 megatons, megatons of oil equivalent of low-carbon fuels, so meaning biofuels, plastic mm -hmm. fuels, you mm -hmm. could achieve this target. And how does this compare versus the potential biofuel that we could have uh, with the analysis of Imperial College? What mm -hmm. we saw is that we are above these values. Oh, so wow. taking into account that you are, you are already using this sustainable biomass for all the other sectors, you still have enough to produce this because half of it could become from e-fuels. So around 75 could mm -hmm. come from, from biofuels. So with our numbers, we see that we are above these, these figures. So the, the main conclusion of the study is that, yes, there is, there is enough sustainable biomass for transport sector and for all the other sectors in Europe with no impact on biodiversity, with sustainable criteria. So, yes, the, the answer is yes, there is. Yeah, wow. So let me turn back to um, Kyriakos and, and Calliope. Um, you know, especially given what what Alba just just you know was just talking about with respect to the scenarios and the and the going above, uh, above and beyond what uh, even those uh, scenarios predict would 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 be needed, and that's the and you all took a conservative approach um, to um, even doing the the estimations. So one of the the points that you make in the report, and and one of the themes I think of this this podcast that already comes through is the need for further um, R&D to help scale up these technologies and also the, the supply chains that support them. So my question to you is taking into account what Alba just said and kind of what we've been talking about through this uh, podcast, do you see the commission coming through with um, funding support to make this happen in your view? I'll leave the Kiriakos to start because he's hugely <laughs> familiar with You've the got the background, yes. Um, I mean, the Commission has always been funding uh, research and development at, at every level, from the lab up to the first of a kind in bioenergy general, in particular advanced biofuels. Uh, and that will continue in Horizon Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, that's not enough because we shouldn't only we tend as technology developers to look to the technology and the plan and so on. But Calliope can help me on that, can add on that. We need also funding in, in new energy crops. If we're going to, to take marginal land into production, we need how, funding how to learn how to cultivate this land, how to remove perhaps pollutants that are there in the land, so on. Also about harvesting, storage, because some of the harvesting happens, let's say, over a certain period that the biomass is available for, let's say, a few months. What do you do? And how do you combine, how do you ensure that you have the value chain to feed so many hundreds of thousand tons let's say, per year continuously and constantly to your plant. Mm -hmm. So the whole world change needs further research. So yes, there is that. The Commission will continue to support this. 
However, I think that that is going to end up is little progress. We always have progress, and that is there is always development going on. I think if we are if we're really serious about bringing these fuels to the market, we need a kind of if I'm, excuse me for the expression. We need a kind of a muscle plant. We need huge mm-hmm. investment because if you are going to build a plant. It needs, let's say, it needs several hundreds of millions of euros and dollars. It's more or less, let's say, equivalent, somehow we can say, mm-hmm. to build these technologies and this facility. So having the support only for the research and development is not enough. We need support to go to, to actually not only build the first of a kind, the so-called FOAC plant, mm-hmm. but also help the industry with very low financing, with loans, uh, all that, and all these kind of things, to actually build the commercial plants. Otherwise... Mm-hmm. Incremental progress won't get us to where we have to be. Yeah. So do you see the commission doing something like that, like you're suggesting? The commission, we have the Horizon 20 Europe. The commission now in the fit for 55, they have their new ideas and there are going to be more investment. So, yes, the question is, uh, that still has to be finalized because the, the discussions around the fit for 55, there's several directives for the moment. There's a lot of legislation being revised and look at it. it a, a lot will depend how all these, let's say, legislation will fall into place and would they really fall into place to support biofuels or like the taxonomy directive might limit the use of biofuels. So there are several issues. So to try to answer, yes, there's going to be more money coming to advanced biofuels like to all other technologies. Is it going to be enough to take us where we have to be? I'm not 100% certain of that. Yeah. Um, so I guess, if I, yes, oh, please. Uh, just to add, uh, uh, because this cuts across different directorates, um, uh, we're talking about the complete value chain and developing the supply part also. Uh, there is a, a need to work with the uh, environmental DGs. There is a need to work with the agriculture intensively, uh, including forestry with a broader scope, with the waste directives. Um, so I think the uh, one word that uh, would sum it all for me is integration, yeah. because this is a value chain that has distinct components that mm-hmm. require further fine-tuning and interlinkages from the land to the production to the conversion plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the system integration in the policy formation will, is going to be critical because there will be money to, to reach the fit for 55. There's a huge scope and ambition for the uh, European Green Deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if there is an integration at the critical aspects, uh, a lot can be achieved. So let me ask a follow-up question. Do you see these results being um, incorporated or or referenced in some way as the discussions um, continue about um, RED3? And and I guess another follow-up question to that would be, do you think the commission really values um, the the role that advanced uh, biofuels can play towards reaching um, the, the Fit for 55 or decarbonization uh, targets for for the EU? Uh, just the, that's, again, a uh, personal uh, opinion mm-hmm. based on the work. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think for sure uh, all the results are useful for the Commission. Uh, from previous experience in the past, they do use all studies. 
So it fits in to providing further evidence and a bit more clarity, more refined assumptions. Um, and uh, uh, yes, they will reevaluate the whole system again because every two years they will be doing that. Of course, uh, where the results will fall is a different element, but I think there will be taken into account within the broader uh, collection of studies and initiatives that are working for this topic. Kyriakos, any, any, any words <laughs> to add? I mean, I would agree with Kajopi. Uh, however, I'm not so certain that, uh, how can I say, my understanding, that can be, of course, very wrong, of the European Commission looking to biofuels is that um, they only consider them for, I would say, aviation, basically, uh, and a little bit maritime. But in maritime, there are so many other fields you can mm -hmm. use. So somehow, the complete end of my fields, from my perspective, and again, it's a very personal opinion. It's not the opinion of beer college nor of Concave, is that they see a very limited use of advanced biofuels, which, in a way, I don't agree there should be more. The industry can, the industry declared they can produce more. The report shows that we can produce more from what the commission estimates. But I don't see this, let's say, the results of the study about the availability of the biomass and how much sustainable biofuels we can produce out of this sustainable biomass. Uh, they're going to be taken into consideration in RED3. RED3 mm -hmm. have put already the numbers of the targets in the different categories of uh, Annex 9A and B. It's not going to change. So uh, I'm not so optimistic as Calliope is, but I hope, I hope that Calliope is right and I'm wrong. <laughs> um, so last question for you all, um, and that is, do you think the proposed policies, especially under the, the Fit for 55 uh, package and, and Red 3, do you think that they're adequate to meet overall transport decarbonization uh, targets for, for 2050, or, or does there need to be more and specifically geared toward, um, you know, what we've been talking today, advanced biofuels, advanced alternative fuels, the value chain, feedstock, um, so on and so forth. Uh, I would think that uh, more will help more, uh, <laughs> if I can phrase it. Um, uh, uh, not necessarily taking more from the other carriers that are there and they are very important, I mean, electrification, hydrogen, etc. But we have to consider that biofuels are firstly compatible and easy to uh, use in the current vehicle, the current fleet. Um, the fleet at the moment, uh, it's, it's known by numbers that electrification is great, but it cannot cover the whole fleet uh, by 2050. So um, it is important to recognize how sustainable advanced biofuels can fill that gap for the timeline they are needed to fit it. Um, and uh, for the sectors that are harder to uh, decarbonize. Um, and uh, for the moment, uh, it is aviation, of course, as a first comer, but there are many issues with heavy uh, duty transport, road transport. Uh, I understand that marine has alternatives, but they're not yet exactly there. So there's a time gap as well, which will reduce meeting the target. And uh, the last point again, it's, uh, uh, it is a value chain. Uh, integration with the resource element is critical. 
Kyriakos, last last word is to you. Okay, I don't really believe that the targets are adequate. I mean, uh, there is so much emphasis on electrification. And if you think that, let's say, basically, when we talk electrification in Europe, we're talking about uh, PV and wind, both of them are intermittent renewable sources. So on the average, they operate between four to 4,000 and a half hours per year. Now, if you have a conversion facility to produce e-fuels coming out for the hydrogen electrification, that has to operate 8,000 hours a year. How are you going to balance that? Someone's not going to burn to put, uh, going to put storage between, but again, that storage has to be fit with something else, whether it's biopower, whether it's nuclear. I have no problem with that, but I don't think that there's a good balance about, let's say, electrification. And there's something else. The commission said that by 2030, they will stop the sale of cars, in the internal combustion cars, by 2035, the sale of fuels. Now, what's the point of running your car with electricity if it's coal-based electricity in Central Europe? Because there is no, there is no direct, there's no policy to limit fossil fuels. And for me, this is a gap in the European legislation. We have got to promote renewables. And it was needed. So far, it was very effective. But from now on, we need legislation to constantly reduce the fossil fuels. And with that, I'm coming, I'm including coal, natural gas, diesel, and petrol. Otherwise, again, what's the point of running your car on coal power in Europe? So there's a gap there. I, I'm, not, I'm not, I don't believe that the targets of the commission in the 55 will take us to where we have to be. But again, very personal opinion. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it there. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Alba, Kaipi, and Kiriakos so much for being with me today um, and um, you know, discussing uh, the study. The study will be posted um, on my uh, website um, along with the, the podcast itself. Um, and um, yeah, take a listen. You'll see it on iTunes. Um, on Amazon, on Spotify, on other platforms. And if you like this podcast, please rate it. And if you're interested in more information and analysis on fuels, vehicles issues, the energy transition, climate change, and transport energy, uh, head to my website, transportenergystrategies.com, and sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's biweekly. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for having us. Hey, Thank you for having us. Sure. And I would like to add that we are currently initiating a study on supply chain and logistics. Oh, great. We know, we know this is the missing part of the story. So mm -hmm. we know that there is enough sustainable biomass. Now the next question is, okay, and how can we mobilize that amount of biomass? How can we build the, the supply chain? What are the barriers? So this is a study that we are launching right now, and we will have it published in the coming months. So, so this is great. So maybe you'll come back on the website or on the website, on the podcast and um, and talk about this, because I do think that this is one of the big um, gap areas. And I don't know how many um, studies there may be some published works out there, but nothing that like maybe what you're saying that really is attempts to look at it from this angle. So stay tuned, everyone. Happy. To come back to share the results <laughs> of the study. Okay, sounds good. Sounds good. Thanks for listening, everyone, and have a great day. Okay. Good for you. Bye bye. Thank bye, you. Thank you.